From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Andrea Miller. I'm Hannah Cunningham. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental stories and ideas. This week, we'll be airing an interview with Ashley Hillman. Ashley is a graduate student at the University of Alberta. We chatted about her research on lichen, caribou, and climate change, but we also had a wider conversation about science communication responsibilities of the academic community, and representation in research. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. Today, we're heading to caribou habitat in Alberta's northern boreal forest in Treaty 8 territory. This region is the homeland of Indigenous communities who witness and are outspoken against the damage to their environment caused by industry, including the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, Fort Mackay First Nation, Lubicon Cree Nation, and Miccosu Cree Nation, to name just a few. We'll also be hearing about research on alpine plants taking place on the shores of Lake Superior, Anishinaabek Nation, Sioux, Cree, and Métis homeland. Before these were heavily researched topics, they were the lived experiences of Indigenous communities and land users. Today, we are sharing the knowledge and perspectives of one biologist and researcher, but it is important to recognize that the scientific consensus on this research is reflected in Indigenous ways of knowing, knowledge systems that are often only granted legitimacy when they are presented in a natural scientific context. So Ashley is my roommate, and a couple of months ago, I sat down to interview her COVID style on a Zoom call from our respective offices, about six feet apart from each other, with cameos from her cat, Harriet. So my name's Ashley. Uh, I am a recent graduate student in the Applied Conservation Ecology Lab with Dr. Scott Nielsen, but I've been working with him as a research assistant for the last few years a sociologist and a biologist in the same household, so studious. In my research, I don't get to dive into the natural sciences too much. Living with Ashley, I get to hear stories from her time in the field, which usually involves riding in helicopters, and where to find edible plants in Edmonton's River Valley. During the pandemic, conversations about our research are a daily occurrence. So we've been looking at how we can map and survey ground lichens in northern Alberta. So ground lichens are the primary forage source for woodland caribou, which hopefully most people know that woodland caribou are uh, a threatened species in Canada and a lot of their habitat is threatened by predominantly human disturbance and habitat loss as a result of that. So caribou are a threatened species in Canada. What exactly does threatened mean? And talking specifically about Alberta, where Andrea, Ashley, and myself live, what is the status of caribou here?
Caribou have long been the subject of conservation and management discussions in Canada. Under the Federal Species at Risk Act, woodland caribou are listed as threatened, which means that the population has declined significantly, is projected to decline significantly, or their habitats are shrinking or becoming more fragmented. Found in the boreal region, the home habitat and migration ranges of caribou span cross-country. This species is protected under provincial and territorial legislation from British Columbia to Labrador to the Northwest Territories. The primary food source for caribou, particularly during the winter months, is lichen. In Alberta, caribou habitat and food sources, including lichen and other sources of forage, are under threat from human disturbance in the northern boreal forest, Treaty 8 territory, or Alberta's so-called industrial heartland. Oil sands, mining exploration, and forestry have dominated and irreversibly transformed this landscape. So, hence the habitat shrinkage and fragmentation. The province has long recognized the need to implement protections for caribou habitat. Since the 1978 Caribou Management Outline for Alberta, the province has implemented legislation, established working groups, and carried out public engagement to protect caribou and their habitat. Indigenous communities living within caribou ranges have been coexisting with this species and practicing sustainable subsistence harvest of caribou long before the province started legislating for the species protection. According to a 2013 report prepared by the Center for Indigenous Environmental Resources and the David Suzuki Foundation, woodland caribou share their environment with 300 Indigenous communities across the country. The same report outlines the cultural and ecological value of woodland caribou for many of these communities. The subsistence hunting of caribou results in greater health and wellness from a traditional diet and the active lifestyle associated with harvesting. The relationship with caribou is also an important opportunity for learning from knowledge holders, sharing food as a community, and developing and fostering a connection to language. Indigenous foodways are also an integral part of Indigenous self-determination. So understanding the deep significance of the species and knowing the relationship between caribou and lichen, what does a reduction in caribou's primary food source mean for this species at risk? First, let's get an understanding of what lichen is. Guaranteed everybody's seen lichen though at some point. So basically, the textbook lichen you would think of is say you're in you're on the coast or you're in the um, sort of wet forest and you see all that green stuff just hanging off the branches. A lot of people call it old man's beard. That's basically lichen. So it's not actually a plant. What it is is a three-way symbiotic relationship between uh, a fungus, which sort of serves as like the body of the lichen and what you'll mostly see, some sort of either cyanobacteria or algae that lives within the fungus that photosynthesizes and to get nutrients and energy for the lichen. And then recently they discovered a third component that's a yeast. So basically a lichen is not really a species or an organism. It's this sort of like network of organisms that work together to produce one lichen. I don't know, it's very cool. And I think it's something that we understand very little about. And um, I don't know, it's just very cool. 
and lichen is very slow growing. It grows maybe a few millimeters a year and it can take up to 40 years for lichen to establish in an area and grow to a level of abundance that can support caribou forage. So uh, it's really important to sort of note when fires have come through, how lichen in the area is recovering, what areas are available as forage sources for caribou and sort of how habitat fragmentation is impacting those forage sources and also caribou's ability to navigate to other sources of forage. So I think fire's the big issue with removing lichen from the landscape, but I think that in an area like the boreal where fires and natural disturbance and both caribou and lichens have sort of evolved to recover from fires, I think historically that was maybe not as much of a problem because caribou could move to other areas of their home ranges that weren't burnt. But now when you have human disturbance compounding that, they can't always get to other areas that aren't impacted by fire. In northern Alberta, that human disturbance on the landscape takes many forms. Caribou habitats are fragmented by the increasing presence of forestry and energy development in the region. These industries create linear features that crisscross the landscape, including railways, pipelines, all-season roads, and seismic lines. Seismic lines are corridors where trees are cut down, typically six to eight meters wide, that are created during oil and gas exploration. In a 2011 study, University of Alberta researchers found that wolves, woodland caribou's primary predator, used industrial linear features like seismic lines to move into caribou habitat, increasing predation risk for caribou and also leading caribou to avoid areas of their habitat close to these features. So as resource extraction continues to encroach on caribou habitat and caribou have tendencies to avoid these areas, the area of suitable habitat for caribou becomes fragmented and grows smaller and smaller. It seems that knowing where caribou's primary forage source, lichen, is clustered across the landscape is very important to both understand what kinds of remaining areas are suitable for caribou habitat and to guide management decisions of these areas. Ashley explains how she uses a process called remote sensing to accurately predict this. For anyone who doesn't know, remote sensing is basically using reflected or emitted light to map objects. We do that using satellite imagery that's been collected in multiple wavelengths. So lichen actually reflects light in the blue wavelength. Basically, so we're using a high resolution, resolution satellite imagery uh, and pulled that blue band out of the image and using just the blue band to predict where lichen is. What we're sort of hoping we can do with this is to make a map of um, where lichen is in high abundance in the, in the province and maybe that can help guide some management strategies for maybe protected areas management for caribou or maybe you know, things like fire management. So even though fire is a natural disturbance, if a fire breaks out in the last remaining lichen patch in a caribou range, maybe, you know, some efforts could be focused there to sort of save that area. And just sort of inform like land management and sustainable land use in areas that are really important for caribou. Establishing a caribou management plan and legislating protection for caribou habitat requires a consensus on the primary causes of caribou herd decline and habitat loss, and an action plan for mitigating them. 
So far, we've covered predation from wolves, the impacts of linear features, and the increasing presence of extractive industries, and the subsistence harvest of caribou by Indigenous land users. Each of these comes with different stakeholders and motivations. Research by Dr. Brenda Parley from the University of Alberta has questioned the approach taken by the governments of the Yukon and Northwest Territories, which permits mineral exploration in the home ranges of the barren ground caribou, a significant species to the cultures and economies of Inuvialuit and Gwich'in communities. Management strategies in the territories operate under the assumption that Indigenous harvesters are the risk to the sustainability of caribou populations and need to change their harvesting practices. On the contrary, Parley proves that Indigenous harvesters have an intricate system of knowledge of caribou, based in observing and interpreting changes in the environment, making them responsive and adaptive in their harvesting practices to caribou herd health and well-being. In the Yukon, the Trondek-Huachin First Nation has held off on harvesting for the last 20 years when caribou hunting was banned in response to declines in the 40-mile caribou herd. In January of this year, the territorial government resumed licensed caribou hunting and recently announced an additional 160 hunting permits for August 1st to September 9th. The nation has expressed concerns that the hunt is resuming before a formalized herd management plan has been put in place with the Yukon government. So what does caribou management or protection look like in Alberta, especially with the density of industrial activity taking place in the caribou habitat in this province? While caribou management looks different in Alberta, the province completed its draft Provincial Woodland Caribou Range Plan in 2017, in which it outlined its commitment to, quote, a working landscape in which carefully managed industrial activity can coexist with caribou recovery, end quote. New industrial activities within caribou ranges, including exploration and drilling for minerals, coal, and oil sands, now require a caribou protection plan. These plans aim to ultimately reduce the impact of industrial activity on caribou and caribou habitat. Critics of Alberta's strategy on caribou management say it lacks an integrative approach that positions Indigenous knowledge holders on the same playing field with scientists and caribou biologists. The baseline caribou population numbers that were used to inform this species' status as threatened may not reflect Indigenous land users' experiences and observations of caribou on the landscape over time. And the call to increase protected areas may do more to extinguish Indigenous rights to those lands than to protect caribou. So where can we look for examples of Indigenous-led management and conservation? Over the last year, regions like the Thai Dene Nene National Park Reserve, established with the Lotsuke Dene First Nation, have been recognized as Indigenous protected and conserved areas. These areas legislate the permanent protection of lands, waters, and wildlife, and prohibit subsurface resource exploration, while protecting harvesting rights and fostering Indigenous-led management and ecological monitoring. If you listened to our biodiversity episode two weeks ago, 
you heard about similar federal initiatives like the Indigenous Guardians Pilot Program and the Indigenous Circle of Experts. Initiatives like these allow us to reflect on the authority of the scientific community, reframe who is considered a scientific expert, and look to strategies for making the natural sciences more accessible. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. We're airing an interview with biologist Ashley Hillman and talking science communication. So speaking on accessibility, there's been a lot that I've learned during the creation of this episode, but it's all come from either Ashley, who's a researcher herself, who you happen to have a connection to, or from scientific journals that more often than not are behind a paywall unless you have university library access. Exactly. What we are talking about today is a heavily researched and much debated topic. We have shared the work of researchers from the academic community who have gained authority and are considered experts to speak on these topics. So what does it mean if the work of the natural sciences is only shared within the echo chamber of the scientific community? We hope we have demonstrated the spectrum of communities and knowledges that are at play with a topic like protection of caribou and caribou habitat. There is a need for the scientific community to make space and be accountable to the public's who will be affected by their research, and to the communities and knowledge holders on whose territories their work is taking place. Ashley agrees. Yeah, I think this is where things like science communication just plays such a huge role. And I mean, I'm not maybe the best at it. And <laughs> um, I think a lot of us as scientists get sort of caught up in the, the academic world and in the more technical side of it. But I do think that working with people who specialize in science communication or even just I don't know, social media and things like that, just making this more approachable. So, I mean, maybe understanding the exact spectral signature of lichen doesn't really mean much to anybody, but to know that there's research going on that's mapping areas that are important for caribou is, I think, really important. And I think in academia, that's something that's definitely lacking a lot. Most of us are receiving money from federal grants, which when it boils down to it, come from taxpayers' money, and most people don't know where their money's going and what their what this research is, is accomplishing, really. The irony is not lost on us that the research we are sharing lives in the ivory tower of academia and is only accessible if you have institutional access or want to pay for it. The open access problem of academic research is increasingly coming to the forefront, with groups advocating to break down that paywall and share research more widely. And Ashley's statement about the role that the public plays in funding research through taxpayer dollars is important to think about. In Canada, the federally funded Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, or NSERC, alone has an annual budget of around $1.1 billion. But paying to fund the research and paying to access it seems a little counterintuitive. Recently, the University of California cancelled its contract with Elsevier after paying nearly $11 million annually to access scientific journals. Elsevier is the global leader in academic publishing, owning 3,000 academic journals, 
and generating billions in annual revenue from subscription fees to these journals. In favor of a more open access approach to research, scientists are making their research available for free or starting their own open access journals, and librarians are advocating for lower subscription fees. Facebook groups like Ask for PDFs from People with Institutional Access have created an online community of PDF sharing among students and professors with access to this research. A lot of sort of the gap in knowledge is sort of fostering this distrust in science because people don't understand the, the process and when they see something about science or some research that's gone on, it's so out of reach of the average person's understanding or even fellow scientists understanding a lot of times that I think, I think that's really led to sort of a disconnect uh, with the public about what's going on in the scientific community. And then getting even an unintentionally sensationalized uh, story about the science that's very easy to misinterpret. And when you don't really understand the scientific process or, or um, what something like a significant finding actually means, it can be very difficult to really sort of sort through the weeds there and, and figure out like what the research actually means and how that impacts people on their daily life. I mean, we learn how to do this critical thinking about science as we learn the scientific process. But like I said, there's no real outlet or, or a learning outcome for really just expressing that in a way that's accessible to people. The knowledge gap and distrust in science that Ashley is talking about is further rooted in the lack of accessibility of these disciplines to people outside of the scientific community. Gaining access to these spaces by being admitted into a graduate program, for example, can have huge barriers. For Black, Indigenous, and people of color, fields like ecology and evolutionary biology are overwhelmingly dominated by white students and supervisors. In the United States, 1% of graduate students in these fields identified as Black or African American, and 0.2 identified as Alaska Native or American Indian, according to a recent article in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. The article is by BIPOC and for BIPOC and includes strategies to support Black, Indigenous, and people of color in these fields. You can find the article linked on our website. Mediums like radio create much needed space to share a variety of voices and to communicate often niche topics to a wider audience. Let's try our hand at some science communication of our own and listen to Ashley share some more of her research, this time about climate change and alpine plants in the Lake Superior region. Sort of a more recent idea in, in climate change research is the idea of climate change refugia. So these refugia are sort of areas that are sort of projected to be relatively less impacted by uh, climate change. So these are areas like maybe high alpine areas that remain cooler, lake shores, things like that, that because of factors like cool currents coming off the lake, like deep upwellings offshore, the shorelines can remain sometimes up to five degrees cooler than inland. And we can really use that as a model to sort of look at, okay, if the, if the world has warmed since the last glaciation event, but some of these shorelines haven't, 
how can we use that as a model to predict sort of as our atmosphere continues to warm, can some of these areas remain cooler and sort of combat those effects in sort of localized pockets. So for me, I'll be studying a population of plants on the shores of Lake Superior um, that have been there since the last glaciation event. And they're now super separated from populations of the same species that are located either in the Arctic or in the high alpine. And because those areas have remained with uh, exposed rock and cool environments, um, those populations have been allowed to persist. Um, yeah, really just sort of an emphasis on protecting these areas that may be buffered from climate change in the future. That's interesting. I wonder if these refuges can occur on any kind of lakeshore, or is there something special about the Great Lakes? Ashley actually touches on some of the qualities of Lake Superior that make it perfect for this kind of research. So in the case of Lake Superior, when you have cold winds and cold currents coming off the lake, you have big storms with big wave action, and as well as ice shearing, keeps a lot of the exposed shoreline as um, just straight bedrock, and it has it's sort of stopped the forest from progressing onto the shoreline. But in these shorelines where the lake the lakes constantly removing those that, that vegetation, only these little arctic plants have persisted there. And so part of the bigger scope of my research will be looking at all of the big lakes in the boreal, so everything from Lake Superior, Great Slave Lake, and how are, is there sort of these climate refugia effects on these lake shores? How are things like the cooling effect of the lake sort of impacting the timing of plant development? Uh, as you go sort of inland from the lake and looking at sort of the latitudinal changes in that as you sort of move north and especially given things like further north are warming at such a faster rate than the rest of the planet. For northern communities, the impacts of climate change are being felt at a much higher rate than the rest of the country, despite northerners being some of the smallest contributors to climate change. I mean, I'm fairly new to the climate change research game, but I think Climate change is a hot button issue and with people who, you know, there's such an, a vocal outcry of climate deniers and it's just, it's very frustrating to understand the science behind it and what's going on and, and not understand how there's such a disconnect, which I think goes back to our science communication aspect of things where battling or combating climate change requires really big changes to the way that we live our lives. And I think people are scared of that and not willing to make those changes on their own. And when you also have government policy not making any changes, there's, we're not gonna move forward on it. And what's your favorite type of lichen? Oh, there's so many. Um, probably my favorite is uh, Cladonia stygia, which is, um, that's a Latin name. It's one of the reindeer lichens. So, the reindeer lichens is a group of lichens that grow on the ground and they have like a main stem but then they form these little branches that come off and then the branches tend to intertwine so they form these big mats. But Stygia is just, I don't know, it looks sort of cool. It has this sort of like bluish gray tinge to it and if you open it up, the inside of it is black and I don't know, I just it's sort of unique from the other reindeer lichens and I don't know, I always get excited when I see it. Do you have a favorite lichen, Andrea? I have to say old man's beard. That's probably the one that I remember seeing most often. I think my favorite name I found was Vagabond Rock Frog Like It.
That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Andrea Miller and Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to Andrea, who not only did this week's interview, but also all of the research that went into this episode. And huge thanks to Hannah for her support on my very first episode. You can reach us for comments or questions via our email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. Okay, this is a long one. Buckle in. <laughs>